The Toll Raven of Annerley Hill by Andrew Flynn I remember it was a Monday morning in mid-autumn and I was labouring and shivering my way up the steep hill that leads from Annerley to Upper Norwood to return some overdue library books. That I can't recall most of them is one of the few details that has eluded my memory of a day about which I'd like to forget more. Even now, as I write this, I can again feel the wet chill of the air and smell of the fumes of the traffic. The weather had changed, too. The affable remnants of a late summer abruptly giving way that day to the cold and damp of a beckoning winter. I should really have worn a coat. No, I should have stayed at home. I first saw him as I approached the spur road to the crumbling sports centre in the park that was once home to Paxton's great glass palace, whose western boundary I was skirting. I could see his head buried in a discarded burger carton bobbing for chips amongst the cans, crisp packets and assorted urban detritus the wind had swept up against the low wall that held back a grassy embankment. Perhaps he heard me coming, because almost as soon as I'd seen him, he jerked upright and looked towards me, his stare giving me an uneasy feeling, as though I were an object of special interest. I came nearer, but... Instead of flying away, he drew himself taller, and then, when I was within a few yards, he unfurled a pair of oily black wings. I hesitated and stopped, and as I stopped, it seemed as if the world around me also shuddered to a standstill. Bizarre as this sounds, I swear that the wind stopped blowing. The traffic on the busy main road fell silent and the newly fallen leaves ceased their tumbling and swirling across the footpath. All that remained was the cold, the damp and the grey of the morning. I've often asked myself since whether I imagined all this and what followed. It's just possible, I suppose, that I could have been vulnerable to such an hallucination of trick brought on by the fatigue and the dulling of my senses that were the usual result of my stints on call during those first months after I'd qualified and which were again my companions that morning. But my imagination has never been that graphic. I have a witness as well for at least part of what occurred. For that I am grateful. Now Unimpeded by distractions, the raven had secured my full and undivided attention. Sensing his moment, I suppose, he opened his beak, but instead of cawing, he spoke. Actually spoke! And no, I'm certain I didn't imagine this. Hoping to pass, were we, friend? Something about his tone, assurance laced with menace, reminded me of an unsympathetic nightclub doorman I'd once met. Why is it that people who call you friends so rarely are? Who, me? Well, yes, actually. Is there a problem? Well, now, that all depends. I do hate it when someone answers a straightforward questions with phrases like, it depends. But just at that moment, confronted with the talking raven and the rest... I sensed the need to make allowances. It depends on what exactly? Ah, a very, very good question. This was almost as bad as it depends. 
but he carried on, as if to spare me any more pointless cross-examination. It depends, you see, on payment of a toll. Oh, I see. It's curious, isn't it, how often we say this when we don't. And payment would be... Ah, yes, now we come to it. The rub, you might say. Payment would be your soul. He left a tiny but palpable gap before the word soul. The ham. I've always had a thing about ravens. A fascination mingled with dread. The relative balance of these emotions varying in proportion to my distance from their object. Now, in the silence that followed the raven's remarkable demand, there came into my mind a memory from childhood, an image buried for years of a dead sheep in the bottom of a rocky gully on a country holiday. A smelly, broken corpse with holes where its eyes had once been, and a large, black bird on a nearby rock, jabbing its fierce, size-like beak into one of the missing orbs. It's the stuff of psychoanalysts' mortgage repayments. They do say the eyes are the windows to the soul, though. The eye, the soul, and the raven. I've been wary of the creatures ever since. The countryside, too, now I think of it. He continued with the same overbearing bonhomie. I can see this has come as a shock to you. You can think it over if you like. There's a bench over there. He tilted his head towards a green wooden bench next to a small patch of grass. The raven was right, of course. I was sort of shocked, but perhaps not quite in the way he imagined or possibly hoped. If we had met at midnight on a deserted moor, or he had sprung from the dark recesses of an antique oak-panelled library, then it might well have been a different. Instead, we faced one another beside a scruffy suburban thoroughfare on an undistinguished weekday morning. It would have been more accurate to say that I was... was bewildered. First, anyway. With the benefit of hindsight, the sensible thing would have been to follow the old dictum about not talking to strangers and walk away. But instead, I sat down as the raven suggested, rested my books beside me and tried to take stock. As I lowered myself onto the seat, he hopped with a spring and a flap onto one of the bench's armrests and perched so that we were now at eye level with one another. I tried hard not to think of the sheep. I'm not really following this, I admitted. In what way? Disingenuous sod. Nonetheless, I've tried to be more specific. What do you mean payment would be your soul? That's, well, ridiculous, isn't it? And what happens if I say sod off or heave a brick at you? If it's possible for a raven to look offended, then this one managed it. Not that I have a brick to heave just at the moment. It's funny, isn't it, how calm I'm still sounding through all this. A tad brazen, even, you might think. But as I rerun the film through my mind's eye, little confession, Mel Gibson, in his pre-mullet days, when he still had an Australian accent, playing me. And that's how things stood, just at that particular moment. But then, as Kipling should really have said... If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, you've probably failed to grasp the situation. And, as I mentioned, it didn't last. The raven made a sound that might have been a sigh and looked away. 
I followed his gaze and noticed then that not everything around us had been still, for I could see that other ravens, scruffier ones, had been gathering round. A few were on the embankment beside us. One was standing on top of the overflowing litter bin, a handful huddled close together on the naked branch of a tree close by. I looked up at the sound of wings and saw yet another make an ungainly landing on the roof of a bus shelter across the road. None made a move or a sound. They just sat there watching. Friends of yours? Friends of yours? I asked. At this point, Mel would be calculating how many bricks he'd need. No, they're more like my congregation. Your congregation? You're joking. I don't joke. They're here to bear witness and to receive. His emphasis on receive didn't sound promising. You know, long ago there would have been many more, but the world is getting so secular these days, don't you think? It's sad, but there you are. We struggle on with our little flocks, maintaining what remains of our parishes. We? You don't mean... You didn't really think I was the only one. At this, his voice started to drift, as if he was now talking to himself almost as much as to me. Or maybe you did. I doubt that we're much remembered in these modern times. If it's not too personal a question, uh, what are you? The raven admitted another sigh, wearier this time. When he spoke again, his tone had changed a little less of the doorman and something more like a retiring Church of England bishop reminiscing about a life in the cloth. For a moment, I might have been listening to thought for the day. I am what your great-great-grandfather might have called a toll raven. We had quite a reputation amongst travellers of lonely byways at one time. They didn't usually ask as many questions as you, of course, just fell obligingly into a state of dumbstruck compliance, particularly if you selected well. Ah, those were simpler times. Everyone knew their place betwixt heaven and hell. We're rather rare nowadays. There's me. I'm normally around Shooter's Hill, but now I increasingly cover Norwood, Streatham and Brixton too. Then there's Black Angus up on Primrose Hill. He's getting on. And a few others dotted around London, on the old hills mostly. Did you know, before the Crystal Palace came here, this was all trees and fields. Very portentous landscape it could be at times. All bus sirens and leftover kebabs now. But that's progress for you. So, I ventured as he trailed off, uh, what do you do with the souls you collect? Are they for the... Uh, I felt silly saying it. Devil? No, nothing like that. They are for them. He looked around at his little group of followers, all silent and intent. There is an ancient belief amongst us that in taking possession of a human soul, our lives become imbued with special meaning or worth or purpose. It's a religious notion, really. Like your kind taking communion, I imagine. But I regret to say it's a waning tradition. When I retire, I don't suppose there'll be a particularly long queue to take my place. Are you a religious man, by the way? 
lapsed Catholic. He chuckled. Well, it sounded like a chuckle anyway. I always say the best sort of Catholic is a lapsed one. Even with the future of my soul supposedly balancing on a knife edge, I found myself warming to him. In truth, I'd started to feel a little sorry for him and his dwindling band of shabby-looking followers. Religion may involve the creation of a collective delusion along the lines of a book I've since been bought for Christmas, it suggests, but it doesn't help people it doesn't help people feel better. Inquisitions notwithstanding. In my still detached way, I was curious. So how do you get hold of someone's soul? Do you pluck their eyes out or something? It can be done that way, and Black Angus still swears by it in difficult cases. But, and I don't know about you, I find that sort of approach so 14th century. I was inclined to agree. So, how do you do it then? The secret is in symbolism. In fact, it's possible to capture the essence of the thing in an oral rite, just as good as the older ways, and much more hygienic. We can do it that way if you like. For some reason, it works best in Latin. Now, in the short time I graduated into my white coat, I'd grown accustomed to telling patients how something I was about to do won't hurt too much even when we both suspected or knew that the truth was probably otherwise, and so I could spot bedside manner when I heard it. It might have been at about this point, I think, that my alarm bells were beginning to sound audible. But I hardly know any Latin, said I. Don't worry, I do, said the toll raven. And what then? I continue on my way, breathing, fully sighted, faculties intact. Well, yes and no. Yes, you won't appear in any way outwardly harmed, unless we do need to do it by the eyeballs. My stomach tightened at the suggestion. And no, I won't lie. When you eventually die, as in time all must, you will be condemned to walk the world in a state of eternal damnation, I am assuming, of course, that you believe in that kind of thing. Do you believe in that kind of thing, may I ask? A chill had crept back into the raven's voice as my insin insulating psychological muffler finally evaporated. Now, you may claim to be elapsed this or that, and you may not have been inside a church bar the odd wedding since the priests at school stopped making you, but to completely discard a belief in the importance of hanging on to your soul, I can tell you that when it comes down to it, you don't pass through educational establishments with names like St Mary of the Immaculate Conception Primary or Christ the Saviour of Martyred Penitent Secondary without some, albeit perhaps unconscious, respect for fire and brimstone. <laughs> Bugger Dawkins! It was time to leave. I tried to rise, only to discover that my muscles wouldn't answer. My brain issued progressively more insistent and urgent calls to action, but the nervous impulses fell on impotent limbs. I tried to speak, but the words that came were not mine. Reduced to a ventriloquist dummy, a marionette controlled by a demon puppeteer, the words I uttered were Latin. 
I remember fighting their stream, managing, I think, to slow the flow a little as a bitter coldness entered my body, and then, suddenly, it stopped. The toll raven was gone. Next to the bench stood a young woman in sports kit, clutching the only one of the library books whose title I can remember and extending a concerned hand. She's moved from trainee curate to fully certified vicar now, passing through her vocational grades much as I have. We still meet and share tales about the sort of things you don't usually talk about with your mates down the pub. We've even laughed about the day she rescued my soul from the pit. Not with the Bible or the Book of Common Prayer, her preferred tools of salvation, but with a well-aimed swipe from a Delia Smith. I still don't know how the toll raven how much of the toll raven's right I completed. I sincerely hope it wasn't enough. I feel fine, normal. Good signs I'm told, but time, as the man said, will tell. He always does. <laughs>